then let me ask Lauren to come up and uh, read our scripture this morning. Morning. All right, so our reading this morning is from Acts 12, 1 through 25, and it's on page 920 and 921 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to turn there. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that this was being done, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went from Judea to Caesarea to spend time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, church. Good to be together. Happy summer officially. And all the kids that remain say amen. And yet, it is getting darker. Have you noticed? Slowly, imperceptibly, and then one day you wake up and say, how did this happen? It's not just the spinning of the world, but the spinning of evil. Seemingly growing, then waning. But with evil, it's hard to tell whether you're at the solstice or the equinox. And sometimes, which direction are you headed? In Acts 12, the gospel is on the move. The kingdom of heaven is expanding. The church is multiplying. The Holy Spirit's presence and power is manifesting. And the world is beginning to take notice of this, what once was, a small band that would have looked like a cult is now starting to rapidly grow but not just the world taking notice, so was the enemy. And he will do just about everything in his power to stop 
the kingdom of God. And the church should expect it. There is evil in our world. Do I need to build that case? Or can I assume that you've watched the news for five minutes? I can close the case in four words. The New York Yankees. That was offensive for some? That didn't work? Okay, fine. Four other words. The New England Patriots. (laughs) Yeah, see, more resonance. It's a heavy topic, so it's okay to laugh for a moment. Evil manifests itself in various ways, whether it's through a pharaoh or a foe, a tyrant or a terrorist, a regime or one ruler. In this case, Acts 12, the Roman Empire and Herod Agrippa. But we must remember, regardless of how evil manifests itself, there is a source of that evil that is behind that manifestation. Paul teaches us that in Ephesians chapter 6, toward the end of that chapter, pretty famous collection of words, verse 11 and following. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the manifestations, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness. They are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's There's a hidden root behind the manifestations of the evil that we may see through a system or an individual. And remember that Paul wrote these words where he himself had been caught up in one of the devil's schemes. He had been blinded by these powers of darkness that he speaks of to actually be used by the enemy to persecute the very bride of Jesus. Believing he's serving God all the while, blinded by this enemy in order to attack the church and to arrest the followers of Jesus, even putting some to death, like Stephen, all that managed to do was scatter the seed and increase the harvest. Like trying to put out a bonfire with a leaf blower. So the enemy tries a new scheme here, Acts 12, right? A decade or so has passed since the martyrdom of Stephen. And the new scheme now is to attack the leaders of the church. Through Herod, Herod puts to death James and then arrests Peter, two of the most prominent and influential leaders and apostles of the church, Peter being the foremost. And it's not hard to imagine that the devil is thinking, cut off the head and the body will die. The only problem with that is the head of the church is Jesus. And he already tried to put him to death, and we know how that turned out. Peter and James, though significant and influential, were but seeds. And as Jesus said, a seed that falls to the ground and dies produces a harvest. God can and will use all things, even what's intended for evil, to advance and redeem his purposes. And it's always been that way. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 50 where we see this concept, this theme in a powerful way, a microcosm of God's whole redemptive story throughout history. You may remember that one of the youngest sons of Jacob, who would become Israel and have the, the 12 sons, was Joseph, and he was blessed, favored by his father, blessed by God, maybe a little premature and ignorant, Maybe a little arrogant, but nonetheless, his brothers conspired to put him to death. God spared his life. They instead sold him to slavery, intending evil against their brother, made up a lie about his death, and for years, he finds himself in prison in Egypt, only to be redeemed and rescued and raised up to the second highest position of authority in the land. And then one day, through a famine, his brothers come not knowing they are bowing before their very own brother, who they haven't seen for decades. And Joseph ends up delivering them, revealing himself, 
and revealing this ultimate plan of God, though his brothers are fearful of retribution, of his retaliation, instead, Joseph says, Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. I see that. But God meant it for good. Think about all the pain and affliction and suffering he had experienced. And he's able to say, but God meant that for good to bring about that many people should be saved as they are today. Even the evil at work through men, God takes and redeems for his purposes. It stretches our very our very minds to comprehend that, but that's a theme that continues to run through Scripture that is ultimately seen in Jesus being falsely accused, arrested, and put to death on the cross only to save a multitude. We see it here in Acts 12, as we had in Acts 8. The intention of evil men to kill, murder, to destroy, and steal ends up being redeemed by God to only expand the multiplication of his kingdom that many would be saved. Take a look at the bookend verses that we just heard read. Acts 12, 1 and then Acts 12, 24. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Evil. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. That's the end of the story. There may have been pain and suffering for God's people in in the middle, but God's redemptive plan continues, and the enemy cannot win. And I wonder if we're experiencing the same thing today. Evil certainly continues to spin. The early church shows us how to respond when evil comes against us or within our world. They show us by faith, by prayer, and by proclamation. I mean, 2,000 years have passed, and yet evil continues, maybe changing names or faces or forms, but the same source is behind it. The same father of evil, lowercase f, let's not confuse the father of light and the father of good. But Jesus said in John 8, verse 44, challenging the Pharisees, who again were blinded, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he simply speaks his own character. could be translated his native tongue. For he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. They didn't take kindly to that. They tried to kill him at that point. It wasn't quite his time. Two chapters later in John 10, Jesus would say of the enemy, he is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Peter, who had faced the enemy and the evil against him, would say in the letter he wrote, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, he's speaking to the church, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He may manifest himself through a man like Herod, through a regime like the Roman Empire, or any other number of ways. So resist him firm in faith. And we'll see that response in just a moment by Peter in this very chapter. Firm in faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone. God is not unaware. Stand firm. That's his call to the church. We know that Jesus has come to give life and life to the full. The enemy is at work taking life, robbing joy, robbing hope, robbing peace. He simply needs to fuel the lies that we tend to believe. He simply needs to fuel the sin that we struggle with of pride and of fear. And he always has been. That's his native tongue. He has not changed the message. He may change some of its form and words. At the garden, the lies he spoke fueled fear, fear probably that Adam and Eve didn't even know existed within them, but the lies through the questions he was asking were basically undermining the very character of God. Is 
God truly good? Listen, oh, have your eyes open. If God told you not to eat of something that is clearly good, he is withholding from you. He knows that your eyes would be open. You would become like God's yourself. So he's fueling two things, fear and pride. Fear becomes evident in their lives. Is it possible that what we have believed is wrong? That our God isn't who he claims to be, that he cannot be trusted. If he cannot be trusted, then we're on our own. We are alone. The pride that says, look, your eyes can be opened if you simply reach and take hold of that fruit that is dangling before you that is so pleasant. That's a picture of anything that we might believe we can reach out and take hold of to find satisfaction or fulfillment or even a measure of control in that very action that says, if God cannot be trusted, then we must take control. And it's been happening ever since. Those are the lies of the enemy. Do these lies sound familiar? Slightly different words. Things that maybe even run through your head on a consistent basis. This is the enemy's voice. God doesn't love you or care about you. Look at your life. How could you say he is pleased with you? Consider what you've done. God has left you. And if God has left you, then your only hope is to take control, to do something about it, to reach out and take what you need, get as much of it as you can, as quickly as you can, and do not let anyone stand in your way. He starts with the lies of fear and doubt. Now he'd just assume crush you, but he knows the path to destruction is just as equally through the fueling of your pride to be solely in control. And if, if that, the forms of those lies sound familiar, it's because he hasn't changed his tune. He is the father of lies, it's his native tongue, and however those lies manifest, whether it's through simply what feels like a voice in your head, or whether it's fueled by the voices of the world, it's the same tune. And unless we are fluent in the gospel and the promises of God and the promises of Christ, we can easily become very confused, disoriented, depressed, or arrogant. The enemy had his tongue in the ears of the household of Herod. Now, if you're familiar with your scriptures or the New Testament, Herod should be a familiar name, but it can be confusing on which Herod. It was a family name. This Herod, Agrippa, is the grandson of Herod the Great. You may remember Herod the Great from Jesus' birth, those days in Bethlehem. And Herod the Great, who had built up Jerusalem, and if you've ever traveled through Jerusalem, and I long to one day, you can still see remnants of the work of Herod the Great and the temple that was laid there massive stones that were somehow moved. Herod the Great built a city, but it was built upon his own pride, his own arrogance, making a name for himself that he believed would last forever. And when he heard of another king who has been born, this young ruler that he could not find, he ordered that all the boys under two years old in that region be put to death. That evil was manifest. That's Herod the Great. That's Herod Agrippa's grandfather. Herod's uncle was Herod the Tetrarch, who arrested and beheaded John the Baptist. You remember, he wasn't even planning on putting him to death, but he had through this big party, and his daughter-in-law danced and performed, and he, probably in a drunkenness, said, I will give you whatever you ask for, this big pompous display amongst his guests and she came with an evil intent through her mother and said I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter and Herod out of fear for his dinner guests not fear that they would do something to him but fear of what fear of losing their respect reputation acclaim approval he was hungry for pleasure himself he ordered that John would be killed so that's Herod Agrippa's uncle 
The apple has not fallen far from the tree. This Herod, you'll see in that, you've heard, you hear in the chapter, he is longing for the approval, the attention, and the acclaim of man. That's ultimately what leads to his immediate justice in this chapter. But before we get to that point, he arrests James, so he's trying to curry favor amongst the Jews, who he is called to rule in that region under the Roman Empire. And so he arrests James and then puts him to death, and he finds that that pleases the Jews greatly. And so he's finding favor in their eyes. So he arrests Peter, another prominently. I'm not sure why he didn't arrest Peter first. Maybe he couldn't find Peter in the moment. So he arrests Peter, and he puts him in prison, and he's planning to put him to death, probably in some public display, public show, to curry even more favor. He doesn't seem to really be all that interested in promoting Jewish ways, but promoting himself. Probably a little pleased with his own power. But there is a delay, because it's in the days of the Passover, the days of the unleavened bread. And according to uh, Jewish law, there would be no trials during that season of celebration. So there's a holding time here while Peter is in prison, and he has him guarded by four squadrons of soldiers. Seems excessive, but Herod's no dummy. He's heard what happened before. The last time Peter and the apostles were arrested and locked down, they somehow disappeared. Well, that is not happening again. So he puts four, four squadrons of soldiers, so around the clock watch was the intention. They end up falling asleep. I wonder how. But he was making sure that, man, that's not going to happen on my watch. I will prove myself much more competent than the others who arrested and imprisoned the apostles. Apparently, the enemy who was whispering in his ear failed to mention who he was up against. And it wasn't Peter. Well, the rest of the story doesn't need much explanation because Luke records it with great description. Peter is delivered once again in a different way, but still a miraculous way. It's interesting. At the time of the Passover, when the Jews are celebrating God's deliverance, God's judgment and removal of an evil tyrant leader, Pharaoh, as he is breaking chains and delivering them into freedom, he does it again. He does it again for Peter and ultimately for his church. I'll point out one thing which will launch us into how we're called to respond to evil. Did you catch this? Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping. The night before Passover was to end, which meant that the trial could commence, he was was going to be put to death the next day. He wasn't ignorant of that. The night before that, with soldiers on both sides in chains, he is sleeping. Not only is he sleeping, he's sleeping so soundly that when the angel showed up, he had to strike him on his side just to wake him up. Now, how is that? How is it that a man who the next day was about to be a dead man was sleeping like one? Uh, For many of us, we have restless nights if we have a presentation the next day, maybe an important meeting or a job interview or a certain doctor's appointment. We can toss and turn and get no sleep. And here is Peter just sleeping soundly. Peter responds with an incredible amount of faith. Now, there was another night that was pretty intense that he found himself sleeping also. So perhaps this is just Peter. Peter is bold. We know that. At times, he seems to express incredible faith, but I wonder if it was just impulsivity and boldness when he was the first out of the boat to walk on the water, when he was the first to say, you're the Christ, the Son of God, when he was first to draw a sword and try to fight these soldiers, which certainly would not have gone well. But in the next moment, he's denying Christ, and he's showing either doubt or fear. Clearly, his faith has now grown. The picture has been clearly seen for him. He's been redeemed by Christ. He's seen God work. And he responds in the face of persecution with, if not incredible peace, also incredible faith. Now, Peter knew that the church was praying for him. And so he received the peace that comes through that kind of prayer, a peace that transcends understanding. We'll get to that. Philippians chapter 4. And Peter clearly believed, had faith in the sovereignty of God, 
Herod was sitting on the throne, but it may as well have been a plastic throne. He knew that his God, the one he had walked with and eaten with and been redeemed by and restored by, was seated on the throne at the right hand of God. Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him on his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that is named. And not only in this age, but in the one to come. That includes our age today. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Head over what things, church? All things. Not some things. All things. Every rule, every authority, every power, every dominion, not only in the present age, but in everyone that is yet to come. Thank you, Jesus. Peter had that faith. It generally, those words had not yet been penned, but clearly he believed that. He also had faith specifically in the words of Jesus. Jesus told him how he would die, and it wasn't going to be that day. Jesus said, you will be an old man, then you will be led to your death, where you do not want to go, and your arms will be stretched out. Now, it's not to say that Herod wouldn't have had him crucified, but he put James to death by the sword, likely a beheading, probably was about to do the same. So perhaps Peter simply had faith in the words of Jesus. I don't know how I'm going to be delivered out of this, but I'm not old enough yet for that to be true. So I trust specifically in the words of Jesus. Generally, he could remember the words of Jesus in John 16, verse 33, the night before he was crucified. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have peace tribulation. Okay, Peter says, yep, got it. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And that general promise is true for every one of us. The specific word of when and how he would die, many of us don't receive that kind of glimpse. Peter did. So he could have faith both generally and specifically. And so how do we, how do we respond if those promises are true? How, how do we respond to the evil that we see in our world or that comes against us? How do we respond in faith, both generally and specifically? Generally, when we see evil in our world, when a dictator wields power and hurts and oppresses or turns a blind eye to suffering, when another dozen children are murdered inside of a school, When teenage girls are kidnapped and trafficked by the thousand. How do we respond? Do we believe the word of God at times like this? Is the gospel still good and still powerful? Specifically, when evil comes against us or our family, when your property is vandalized, broken, or stolen, when your child is hurt, or abused. When a false accusation comes against you that slanders you or your name or your reputation, do we believe then that the word of God is true? Do we believe that the gospel still has power and still is good? Can we sleep soundly and peacefully like Peter. Should we? We may not have had Jesus speak face to face to us or give us a vision of our future or our days, but we do have the unchanging, unwavering Word of God. And we must know it, speak it, live by it, believe it. Psalm 18.30 proclaims this God his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. We're told not to put the Lord our God to the test. But when he makes declarative promises like this one, we can trust him fully even when it doesn't feel like we can. So what does God's word say about good and evil and how we are to respond? So much 
It is a storyline throughout Scripture. Let me give a brief selection. And if you're looking for a place just to meditate and be through the Psalms, because God's people were often against evil, oppression, in suffering and pain, on the run, being persecuted, and again and again, they pour out their heart in real, unapologetic ways. David, Asaph, the other writers, and yet they come to a place of trust and worship. Here's a couple from Psalm, Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That is his word, and his word will prove true. Psalm 10, verse 16 and following. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. So nations come and nations go. Rulers come and rulers go, but the Lord is the king forever, ruling over all things. Verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's word and it will prove true. Isaiah 41 verse 10, God says to his people, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is who our God is. That was a promise specifically for a nation at a time. Today that promise is fulfilled in Jesus. It is already true for those that are in Christ. It will one day finally be ultimately experienced. So it is not a promise that we will always be delivered from every evil. That we will always be rescued from every persecution or pain. Or, or James would not have been put to death. We cannot miss that. And I think it's so significant that I'm going to spend some time on it next week. We focus on Peter. That's where the focus is in chapter 12. James seems to get the short end of the stick here. The short end of the sword. James would have been prayed for just as intensely as Peter was. Now, perhaps they didn't have as much time. Perhaps he was arrested and put to death that next day. They had more days to pray for Peter. But James was just as prominent, just as influential, just as loved, maybe more loved than Peter, from what we know about Peter. The church would have poured out their heart in prayer for God's deliverance, for God's rescue. And what was the answer? He will die. God doesn't intervene. Let's not miss that. The justice of God is true. More on that next week. What I'll say is that James's death is also in fulfillment of God's word, both generally and specifically. Generally, God's word says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's words. Psalm 116, verse 15, you want the Old Testament proof of that. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. To God's eyes, this is good. Because your pain and suffering and weakness in this world ends and you are with me. We are not promised life in abundance here on earth, but eternally. Specifically, Jesus had said to James, you may remember, I'll probably reference this again next week. He said, you will drink from the cup that I am going to drink. James and John said they could. So he said, you will. So there's a fulfillment. Even in his death, there's a fulfillment of God's word. When we face and see evil, may our faith be that God is just. He will always judge evil. It may not look like it. It may not feel like it. It may not always be immediate, like we see in this, the end of this chapter. And the church probably said, it wasn't soon enough. Why didn't you strike down Herod before he killed our beloved friend? Remember that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
Evil may appear to prosper and go unpunished, but the face of the Lord is against them and will cut them off from the memory of the earth. We can sleep soundly. doesn't always mean we should. We see the people of God staying up all night to pray and to intercede as well. As well as we see Peter sawing logs, fully at peace, that if his lot and his end is the next day, to him it is also gain. The only reason I believe that we remember Herod, because if the promise is true that his name and memory will be wiped off, why do we remember Herod? Perhaps as a reminder of God's justice, that God can do this, that he can and will judge evil, and he can remove anyone he pleases. When evil comes to us, into our lives, into our families, when it brings pain, when it brings trial, when it brings hardship, when it does bring those sleepless nights, remember who God is. Remember who God is. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus is teaching his disciples to remember who God is. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Remember who your God is. Remember his love for you. He is not unaware. He is not aloof. Second, remember what Christ has done. Peter reminds us of what Christ has done. 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He could have. He could have done something about it. But instead, his action was to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That's what we've been called to. Remember who God is. Remember what Christ has done. Remember what he has promised. Paul says in Philippians 4, 5 and following, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He has not left you. Do not be anxious about anything. That's not your law. It's not your identity. But in everything, in everything, by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses any understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember what he has promised to you, church. We respond with faith when evil comes against us or when we see it in our world and feel helpless. We respond with faith in who God is, what Jesus has done, and what he has promised. And we respond with prayer. In all things by prayer. So Lord, grow our faith to be like that of Paul's and Peter's in the early church. Do you remember that the the early church didn't pray for deliverance, at least in a snapshot in Acts chapter 4, verse 20. 29, they prayed for perseverance. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon the evil. Look upon the persecution. And grant to us, your servants, not rescue, not deliverance, not escape, not victory over them. Grant to us to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and for signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Give us the boldness. We know you're at work. We know you've got this. But we tremble. We withdraw. We want to bail. Now that's not at all saying, and when I preach that, it's not at all saying that a prayer for deliverance and prayers for rescue, prayers, help, Lord, are good prayers. They're throughout Scripture. Jesus taught us to pray. Deliver us from evil. It's a neutral uh, noun there. So it could be deliver us from the evil one. We're taught to pray those prayers. I just find it I probably convicting that the early church's first prayer is for boldness in the face of persecution, evil, and trial, not 
rescue and deliverance. Maybe that was their next prayer, but their first prayer is for boldness. Philippians 4, that passage is so powerful. Memorize it, live it, proclaim it to yourself first, to others in need. Do not be anxious about anything. We're not meant to live that way. Live with a confidence that comes through your faith in who God is, what he has done, and what he's promised. The peace of God, it should transcend understanding. People should say to you, how do you have such peace? I know what's going on in your life, in your world. And you say, I can't really explain it. Because it transcends understanding. All I can do is say, I know it. It's being given to me. Day by day. Sometimes it feels like it's going to run out the next day. But God has never failed. His word proves true. Well, how do you do it? How, 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 do, you, how do you live in that? I mean, I, I want that. Some of you want that right now. Tell me. Tell me now. Paul already did. In everything by prayer. And that's your first response. In the face of trial, pain, in this case, and with our focus this morning, when evil comes. In all things by prayer, with supplication, that means with petition, seeking the Lord, asking, with all requests, any request, nothing is off limits. The Lord will help direct us when our prayers are self-centered. We are taught to pray selflessly. But sometimes in those moments, we just need to pour out and cry out to our God. There is nothing off limits. With all kinds of prayers and requests, Paul would say other, elsewhere, bring everything to the Lord. In this case, boldness is a good prayer, but so is deliverance, rescue, healing. With thanksgiving, do not miss that part. In the midst of trial or pain or attack or suffering, with thanksgiving, and that may be the hardest part, how do you give thanks right where you find yourself? How would Peter give thanks while chained to those guards? Thank you, Lord, that I am not alone, that you have not left me. I thank you, Lord, for your words which dwell within me, that you have spoken to me. I thank you that you are seated on the throne and not me nor any other, not Herod. I thank you that nothing is out of your control. No problem is too big. No problem is too small. Thank you that your plan, your will, and your ways are greater and better than mine. Start with prayers like that. Thank you, Lord. Are we interceding also on behalf of others who are suffering and under persecution and trial? When, when Paul wrote those words, yes, we can receive them individually, but they were written to a church. That was often the, the mindset of the early church. Was, it was a people. It was a truth for God's people. Do not be anxious, church. Together in prayer and requests, bring everything to the Lord with thanksgiving and you will know the peace of God which transcends understanding. It will wash over you as a people. Intercede for those that are suffering, praying big, bold prayers, praying back to God His very words, His very promises, which He doesn't need to be reminded of, but maybe we do. Back to Psalm 10, we can pray that. Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted you will strengthen their heart. Are there loved ones in your life, within your immediate family, within your extended family, co-workers, friends, that are afflicted today? Pray this prayer back to the Lord. You hear the desire of the afflicted. That's not saying that they are there on their knees praying. It's not even saying that they have a faith or a belief. But the, the desire of the afflicted is for what? Security, rescue, healing, wholeness. Pray that back to the Lord. You hear that desire, Lord. 
You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. You will bring justice. Those are your words, Lord. And are there those that are afflicted in our world that you may not even know their names, but you see their faces through pictures on our news, through pictures in social media, You see the faces and the lives of the afflicted. Pray the words of God back to him. He hears their heart. He hears yours. The early church prayed. That was their weapon. More on that next week in our response to injustice. Because we have a just God. That'll be Ephesians 6. Prayer is not our last resort when all else fails. It is the most powerful and effective weapon we have against the true enemy of evil that's in our world. Prayer is not the only thing that we are called to, but it is the first thing. May we be known as a house of prayer. That's been one of our consistent prayers and desires for years. Jesus, you said, I will make my house into a house of prayer. We want to be a greenhouse Make us into a house of prayer, Lord. There's a movement in our region called Saturate, which has a desire for unity, for becoming one church, meeting in different spots, just like the early church. I mentioned it a number of times. I was preaching on it a bit last week. Something is stirring. The enemy doesn't like it. He will be against it. May he not prevail. As right now, we are in the midst of a hundred days of prayer, a hundred churches praying a hundred days. The theme is reconciliation this week. I invite you to lean into those themes with the brothers and sisters in Christ in our region. Make us a house of prayer, Lord, not as a last resort when all else fails, but as a first response to what we see and experience in our lives. Finally, briefly, this is in my notes brief, and I will try to shorten that even further. Respond to evil with proclamation. The proclamation of the gospel, the truth of who God is and what he's done, it must be spoken. It must be spoken aloud. We need to preach the gospel at all times, in all ways, and we even need to preach it to ourselves. Maybe as a reminder each day of the truth of the gospel as we head into a world which is often darkness. Nothing was going to stop the early church from proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Not Herod, not Satan, not persecution, not prison. They continued to preach. That's the bookend verse, verse 24. The word of God continued to multiply and go. And they were right there proclaiming it. We even need to proclaim it when we think no one else is listening. I love verse 11. I'll shorten it, but Peter comes to himself. The whole time he thinks he's so sound asleep, he just assumes he's still sleeping. He gets himself out of the prison. He comes to himself, and he looks around, and he goes, whoa. What, what? He, he says out loud, now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel, has rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He proclaims the gospel aloud. He is alone in the middle of the night. There's his impulsiveness again. He's just speaking out loud. Is there anyone here? I mean, they're probably looking for him in that very moment. Here he is proclaiming the gospel. And then he runs to find the church to give testimony to them. We need to evangelize like Costco snack peddlers. Speaking the goodness of God, whether anyone is listening or buying it or not. Man, we've got a script. Keep it going. We need to hear that. We need to be reminded of God's deliverance his power, his rescue, his goodness, his chain-breaking. Let's be like Peter. I find it insightful that he goes to the door and knocks. It's humorous, isn't it? Rhoda comes. Hey, someone's at the door. Why did they send her? I don't know. I mean, they, they, this was probably a known place. This could have been the very place where the, the Last Supper took place, where they were gathering. It was probably known within the city. So knock, knock, knock on the door. Rhoda goes down. She hears Peter's voice. She runs back up in her excitement. Maybe she was told, never, you know, don't open the door under any circumstance, just tell us who's there. Likely. I mean, they were under persecution themselves and fearful. So they're praying. They, she comes, Peter's at the door. No, he's not. What have they just been praying about? Lord, rescue Peter. Deliver him. Spare his life. You, know, you didn't for James, but do it for Peter. 
The very thing they're praying for, God answers, and they say, no, no way. Let's keep praying. So even their faith needs to grow. Even their prayer, after all that they've seen and experienced, they're still growing in prayer and in faith. I hope that's encouraging. I hope we're praying bold prayers like that also, but I hope it's encouraging that the measure of our faith, the level of our faith is not what makes prayer effective. It's the object of our faith who answers and works with our weak prayers. And so they are surprised and yet encouraged as they do finally receive Peter and hear again him give testimony to the gospel. Guys, Jesus is still a chain breaker. He's still the deliverer. He's still alive and well. Let's be people who never stop proclaiming that message, even in the face of evil. In fact, when the darkness is intense, the light shines all the brighter. Let's be like Shadrach and Meshach and that other guy who said, our God can save, he can deliver, but even if he doesn't, we trust him and we are willing to lay down our lives for him. Let's be like Asaph, who I mentioned earlier, but in the Psalms 70, the 70s, he often crawled out to God, where are you, God? Why are you doing nothing about evil? We do not see you. And then he comes to a place where he says, yet I will praise you. I remember your works of old. And he recounts the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. So even if God's presence doesn't feel real or relevant in our life, what Asaph says is, you need not prove yourself you already have. Who am I? I remember your works and I proclaim them as true. Pray and proclaim like Habakkuk. Remember, Habakkuk wrestled in faith. We looked at that a couple years ago. And he said, Lord, I've heard your work. But essentially saying, I don't see it now. I see you nowhere to be found. But I've heard of your work. In the midst of our years, Lord, revive it because I need to grow to believe it. Let's be like the early church who despite persecution prayed for boldness. Despite constant threat and opposition and evil did not stop proclaiming God's word. And God's word continued to multiply. Invite the team up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, grow our faith in you. Build our prayer life on the foundation of your promises. May we forever proclaim who you are what you've done, and what you've promised to do. And we pray along with one of the most overlooked and yet powerful prayers in Scripture, the prayer of a father. Lord, we believe. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Grow us, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen.